triggered so much shock because it underlined to everyone, it can happen and it can happen anywhere. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Last week, a young Israeli Arab man living in Germany made a bet with his Jewish friend. The Arab claimed that he could wear a kippah, a skullcap worn by traditionally observant Jewish men, and walk down the street unmolested in a nice neighborhood in Berlin. He was wrong. And he ended up filming the surreal scene as he, an Arab, was accosted, screamed at, and whipped with a belt by another Arab who thought he was a Jew. The video went viral, and in response, Jews in Germany organized a series of rallies they called Berlin Wears a Kippah. These events led to inspiring images of Muslim women wearing a kippah on top of their hijab and Germans from all walks of life explaining that they came because they felt a special duty to fight anti-Semitism. The rallies also coincided with AJC Europe's 3I conference, which dealt with matters of immigration, integration, and identity. It was an event that brought together policymakers, academics, and civil society groups to examine and respond to these pressing issues. Joining us as we talk about these recent events is Deidre Berger, director of AJC Berlin, and a respected Jewish leader in Germany and across Europe. Deidre, thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be with you again. Now, I'm a guy who usually wears a kippah. It's just a part of who I am. It's how I choose to practice my Judaism. But when I was in Paris on AJC Business last fall, multiple people warned me that that's just not something you do in Paris or in many other cities um, across Europe. Is it safe to be publicly, proudly Jewish in Europe today? That's not a question that I frankly can answer. (laughs) Because in the vast majority of cases, nothing will happen. But should you be the person to whom something happens, then you'll say, Deidre, why did you say that? (laughs) I think there is a different feeling than in most American cities. It can also happen. We shouldn't delude ourselves. But there's a certain edge, a tension, particularly in some areas of European cities, um, and particularly areas where there's a large concentration Um, often of immigrants, although, as we saw in Berlin um, last week, there was an incident in one of the most hippest (laughs) integrated neighborhoods in Berlin um, where everyone least expected it. And I think that's why it triggered so much shock, because it underlined to everyone it can happen and it can happen anywhere. In 2014, which was, I think, the last major time that Germans rallied against anti-Semitism, Chancellor Merkel called it a, quote, monstrous scandal that any Jewish person should be made to feel unsafe. Then there, the upswing in anti-Semitism was attributed to a misplaced reaction to that summer's war in Gaza. But as things have cooled in the Middle East, uh, although now perhaps they're heating up again, what has been the cause of you know, sustained anti-Semitism since then? I think that the demonstrations that took place in European cities throughout the continent in 2014 revealed to us the amount of anti-Semitism there was. It wasn't new then, and it's certainly not new now. 
perhaps if there had been more of a reaction to it then, it would have helped stem some of the forces that we're seeing now. A number of us said last night at the rally that we had here in Berlin, there were over 2,000 people. Um, Berlin wears a kippah was the, was the motto. And indeed, um, hundreds and hundreds of people were wearing a kippah to show solidarity. And on the one hand, it was a great feeling, I have to say. I've, I haven't experienced that anywhere in Europe. Um, and on the other hand, there was the feeling of where was this rally in 2014? Because it seemed more related to Israel. Is that why people felt there was no need to intervene? And it was an uncomfortable feeling that people are distinguishing. If it's just an attack against someone because they're wearing a kippah, clearly anti-Semitism, if they're yelling um, Jews to the gas because of a war in Gaza, they're not ready to go out on the streets um, and demonstrate solidarity. So I think the problem has been with us for a long time. It's certainly become much more open. And I think it's difficult to measure anti-Semitism. Most incidents don't get reported. But we feel the pressures very much um, here in Berlin, in Paris, in the schools, in the parks, in the public transportation. Things can happen. Remarks fall. Fortunately, in Germany, it's there's been much less physical violence than in France, but it doesn't reassure us in that sense. There's just an attitude of it's okay to say things, and some of it has also come about on the right. And the resurgence in Europe, and really throughout Europe, of right-wing nationalist populist groups has certainly, unfortunately, helped break taboos. There's no doubt about it. These are people who ostensibly are friends of Israel, ostensibly are friends of Jews, but in the meantime, they're trying to prohibit religious slaughter. In the meantime, they're trying to use Jews to really attack Muslims and say, well, we, the Christians and the Jews, against the Muslims. Um, but we don't see that there's really an understanding in most parts of this right wing um, for Jewish culture. There was a very interesting and powerful moment last night at this rally in Berlin when the head of the German Jewish Student Union, um, Dahlia Greenfeld, said, we know you're there, the alternative for Germany. That's Germany's right-wing movement. We know there's members of you out here in this audience. And let me tell you, you are instrumentalizing us, and we know that. We do not serve um, as a group to use in order to, to gang up on another minority in society. And we don't want you here. You can go someplace else. And there was a huge round of applause for her, and I think... It's a problem. It's a problem not just because of this relatively smaller group of right-wing nationalists, but because they have opened, they've gone through, um, they've opened up things now. There's the taboos that maybe were there before that weren't so terrible to have simply aren't there. I think there's also a growing awareness, which is very good. There's been a problem, for instance, for a long time in rap music. Many of us know this. We, our, our kids hear it or we hear it, and I think there's been too much tolerance for racist, um, xenophobic, anti-Semitic lyrics. And I think there's now an understanding that you can't separate these messages to the degree people thought you could. And in Germany, there was an award given, the major music award, the Echo Award, was given two weeks ago to two rappers um, for... Uh, an album that definitely had anti-Semitic texts on it and attacked the Holocaust. 
And there was such an outcry in Germany, although they've been saying the same things for years, that other musicians gave back their awards. Um, And just yesterday, the music industry announced that they're canceling these awards altogether because they now realize that this award is so associated with anti-Semitism that it has no value anymore. This would be like the Grammys in America saying, yes. you know, yes. we're not, we're not, and, and they canceled it this year or they canceled it entirely? They canceled it entirely. They just, at the award ceremony this year, um, the rappers who got a, a special award, um, Kollega and Farid Bang, it, their texts are anti-Semitic, and this was pointed out repeatedly. There was a lot of outrage. Um, not that it hasn't been known, but it somehow focused attention because at the moment of the, the heightened attention to anti-Semitism. And other musicians who have gotten the Echo Award, like the Grammys, started returning them, really famous German musicians. And even at the ceremony, another famous punk musician, Campino, um, said on the spot that those are anti-Semitic lyrics from from these artists, and he didn't want an award when people like like that were getting the award, that it diluted its importance. And just yesterday, the music industry, it's like canceling the Grammys. They just said, we cannot, in the future, continue to give this award, and we're going to have to rethink our format about how we make decisions and the ethics um, of music lyrics. It's so interesting to think of that in light of some of the issues that the American kind of pop culture industry has been going through, you know, in in this Me Too moment, for example, where I think there's been an awakening that a lot of our film, our television, our music has benefited from, in many ways, you know, a sort of oppression or or harassment of 50% of our society, of women. Um, And I think that, you know, Hollywood and, and the music scene and whatever have chosen in the States to go in a different direction. I wonder what it means that that this is what the music industry in uh, in Germany decided to do. But, you know, the way you phrase it, it sounds like this is something that was really overrun with hatred in a lot of ways. Well, I don't know that it's any worse in that sense in Germany than elsewhere. I mean, there's lines are often overstepped and music, there is artistic freedom. But I think there's a recognition that there do need to be boundaries. And while we don't want governments maybe setting boundaries, there's different ways of regulation, and that's what just happened here. I think it was very healthy, where there was a pushback from other artists, there was a pushback from the consumers, um, and the music industry had to react to it. And I think that was important. It's also important because, if we're honest, teachers tell me this all the time, they can do as many prevention programs as they want against anti-Semitism, against homophobia, um, against attitudes toward women. And in the end, these kids then go on a break and hear these very violent um, lyrics that are full of prejudice and stereotype, and it counteracts whatever they're trying to teach these kids. Um, So I think getting really prominent people aware of this problem um, and particularly getting musicians to consider more carefully what they're saying and the impact it has will also help us counteract anti-Semitism, racism, and other problems. There's no doubt about it. It's just a small first step, but it's time to fight back. Words do matter. Words hurt. And I think for too long there's been a feeling, oh, it was too much political correctness, But with the resurgence of people saying, I can say whatever I want and it's okay to be racist, which is what people like 
um, some of the nationalists are saying now. There's networks forming. Steve Bannon came to Europe and met with right-wing groups, and at some of those meetings, people were openly saying, yes, it's okay to be racist, and we want to create our own news media to disseminate that message. It's a problem, and I think it's even more important that we as civil society take action, and we as a Jewish community. After World War II, one of the first things that AJC did was create movies um, about tolerance and the acceptance of diversity. And there's some wonderful films, if look on our, our AJC archives, about how to accept. And I think it's certainly work that we need to do ever more. Civic education has sort of fallen aside for the last decades. It's time to bring it back. I think we'll try and uh, link to one of those cartoons in our uh, show notes here on, on this episode of the podcast. I want to come back, though, uh, actually to, to two things uh, that, that you mentioned earlier. First, to those comments that uh, Dahlia Greenfeld, the uh, Jewish student leader, made um, about the Alternative for Germany party at the rally. You know, I, I think it's so interesting. One thing that I've noticed about the far right here in America is that they like all of the things about Israel that we would actually spend a lot of our time explaining why those things are not true and and not good. So for example, the the kind of alt-right here in America, and I'm interested to hear from you whether it's the same in Germany, they, they don't understand Israel. They don't understand that Israel has freedom of religion. They don't understand that Israel has uh, equality for, um, for all different groups across society. So they look and they see Basically, they see a bunch of white folks putting down a bunch of brown folks and they're like, oh, that's awesome. We should do that here. And, you know, never mind the fact that we would very patiently and clearly and insistently explain that that is not actually what's going on in Israel. They kind of like to see that. Is that what we're talking about with AFD, with Alternative for Germany? Absolutely. The Alternative for Germany, the Freedom Party in Austria, the Front National, all of basically all of the right-wing parties in Europe um, ostensibly have a great affinity for Israel because they believe that Israel is fighting the Arabs or the Muslims. That's not what Israel is about, as we know. Israel has 20% of its population is Israeli Arab with equal rights in the society. Of course there's problems and discrimination. There is in all societies with minorities which is not to make light of them, but there's also tremendous progress and strides being made. And this they don't know about, they don't care about, they don't want to hear about it, they don't want to hear about Israel as a democratic society, as you said, with full freedom of religion, of um, for all religions, um, freedom of opinion, a, a vibrant democracy. And that's not their interest. They're looking for an alignment that serves their needs and doesn't recognize the country that Israel is. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have people who would swear up and down that they're not anti-Semitic, they're just anti-Israel. But often, when it comes time for them to demonstrate that, they're not headed to the Israeli embassy in Berlin or in Paris or a consulate in another major city. They're headed to a synagogue or they're headed to some other Jewish place. Why do you think that is? We have a real dichotomy here, very often um, with the political left in Europe, which, as we know, can be very strident and, and often takes a larger place in public debate even than we might have in the United States. There's 
a feeling among some of us who work on this issue that there's a very popular project in Germany that spread throughout Europe called Stumbling Stones. Mm. And the idea is to, to put um, a bronze paving stone into the, the sidewalk in commemoration of a Jewish person who was deported and killed by the Nazis. And there's almost a, a real reverence for this project. And what we're seeing more and more is that it, at dedication ceremonies, that people will then talk about at length about the Holocaust and what Germany's lost, um, which is important, but then they will immediately launch into criticism of Israel hmm. and say, because of the Holocaust, it's our duty to today uphold the rights of the Palestinians and look at what Israel um, is doing to them. It's like what the Nazis did before. These are, of course, isolated incidents. I don't want to in any way um, sort of lessen the, the impact and motivation of those involved in the project, but we are seeing this happen, and it's often on the left, uh, support for the boycott, divestment, sanction movement, um, and a lack of understanding of Israel and an insistence that there's a complete and total separation between the two. And at any rally that you go to in Europe, in Germany, in the United States, I think as well, protesting Israel, there's always anti clearly anti-Semitic slogans that take place um, in speeches, the comments. I mean, the boundaries are crossed nearly every step along the line. Now, Deidre, AJC Europe just hosted a conference on immigration, integration, and identity that you called 3I. I think it's safe to assume that you focused on immigration, integration, and identity, but can you tell us more about the idea behind the conference? What spurred it on? Who was there? What will be the outcomes? It was a very exciting conference, and it was initiated um, discussion amongst a number of us, including AJC CEO David Harris, um, who's long been very concerned about these issues and prompted us here in Berlin, since the office has been open, um, we started almost 20 years ago our first Turkish-Jewish roundtable, and we've been extremely engaged ever since then in outreach to the Muslim community, in particular the Turkish, because in the case of Germany, they're the majority of Muslims um, in the country. So the idea came um, about because it's become clear to many of us at AJC in our discussions, in our travels around Europe, um, that there's increasing concern about the place of the immigrants um, after World War II, the guest workers in Germany, the, the North Africans in France after the war, and many others. So with so much going on, it was clear to us that we as AJC can really help societies in Europe explore these issues to bring people together, create a relevant network of people both from the immigrant community, the experts from government, create a real public-private partnership. And we were, I think, very successful with our first conference here in Berlin. Um, we had experts from France, um, numerous experts from Germany, very diverse panels of Germans from many different backgrounds, which people noted and remarked on because it's very unusual. And for us, it was normal to not just talk about minorities, but for them to be part of the discussion. We even had a group of, um, of new 
migrants that have come here that are part of an Israel leadership group that AJC has, has helped work together um, to create. And these are, are young migrants who've been here six months, less than a year, and they're already taking action. They're helping distribute food to homeless. Um, they're looking for ways they can pay back to a society where, where they've barely arrived. But we thought this is so important that this is one of the ways we can help combat not just anti-Semitism, which unfortunately is widespread among people coming from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and other countries, Muslim-majority countries, um, to get them to know Jewish people, Israelis better, but above all, to immediately get them engaged in society. This is really the crux of it. And I think that we demonstrated this um, over and over again at this event, the, the three I's, um, immigration, integration, identity, and we discovered that there's even a fourth I, inclusion. It's not just about integrating one group into another, but finding a more inclusive way for everyone to be part of society. Well, Deidre, if there's any group throughout history that has learned how to survive immigration, how to integrate into a society, how to grapple with issues of identity, it's we Jews. And I'm so glad to know that your team is working all across Europe to help address those issues for society as a whole. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Our next guest is Haaretz reporter Allison Kaplan-Summer. Allison covers diaspora issues for the Israeli publication and is one of the three regular panelists on The Promise Podcast, an outstanding weekly show from the TLV1 radio network. Allison, thrilled to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'd like to talk about this Natalie Portman controversy that has sprung up. In the beginning, there was the Genesis Prize. But before we dive into the specifics of the controversy, can you give our audience some background on that prize? Yes, it's a very odd prize. Um, I have to say, when I attended the first Genesis Prize ceremony in Jerusalem, where they were presenting the prize to Michael Bloomberg, um, I was a little bit, uh, you know, to uh, to use the colloquial, weirded out <laughs> by what I was seeing there. <laughs> Um, you know, what it looks like to me, first of all, the three founders who have a, a given a $52 million endowment, out of which the $1 million prize uh, goes, are Russian oligarchs with very tenuous ties to Judaism. Most are of uh, Ukrainian origin, made their money in Russia. They have ties to Putin. Um, they live in New York and Israel and Russia. They, they, they move around. Um, and uh, they were they they want to celebrate, uh, as they said in the ceremony, the Jewish spark. You know what's special about Jews? And there were a lot of pictures of Einstein and uh, and 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 famous you know famous Jewish figures. So it, it seemed to be trying to make a connection between being rich, smart, famous celebrated and Jewish. And, uh, and and that was what was odd. It didn't really look like it was giving a prize for having, you know, done anything specific for the Jewish people, except becoming rich and famous, and I guess being a, an inspiring role model. So it's, it's an odd, odd prize. And um, Benjamin Netanyahu, from the beginning, looked like he was a central part of it. The whole deal was to bring somebody prominent, 
Jewish um, uh, celebrity who would get attention to Jerusalem, have a big ceremony honoring them. They would get an award from the Prime Minister of Israel, and this would put a positive spotlight on Israel. So the visit and the ceremony seems to be part of the, or essential to the, the purpose and the point of the prize. Um, and in the Natalie Portman discussion, I think that's gotten a little lost. So they announced that Natalie Portman is going to be receiving this prize, but she was actually their second choice, right? Didn't Wasn't there originally an announcement about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Yes, there was an announcement about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There seems to be, they're not being uh, very uh, transparent about what happened behind the scenes. Their explanation is that because of judicial ethics, she couldn't really receive the prize, even though the prize is uh, traditionally now being redistributed to charities. Mind you, in the beginning, when they were presenting it to Michael Bloomberg, who's a billionaire, they were just going to hand him a million dollars to do with what he would. And even Bloomberg realized that that was a public relations problem. Problem. So he immediately, this was uh, Bloomberg reconceived the prize into uh, giving away the money again to a given charity. And, uh, and so he did that. And then all of the um, subsequent winners, uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Yitzhak Perlman, uh, subsequently uh, gave away the, the prize money as well. So uh, the official explanation is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, could not receive the money. Therefore, she could not receive the prize. And therefore, Natalie Portman was chosen. Um, others say that it was a celebrity issue, and when they saw the opportunity to uh, to get Portman, that they uh, you know that she was uh, she was switched for for Ginsburg. Um, the explanation being that Ginsburg has been very sharp in her criticism of President Donald Trump, and again with Netanyahu and company being very close to the prize. The Director General of the Prime Minister's Office is on the prize committee. Um, uh, it was decided that uh, they feared uh, giving a prize so prominently to Ginsburg handed by Netanyahu uh, might anger um, the powers that be in the White House, and therefore um, a switch was done. The prize was being given to Portman, and uh, Ginsburg was being given a Lifetime Achievement Award. So Natalie Portman accepts this award. Preparations for the ceremony are underway, and then she announces that she's not going to participate. What happened there? Well, first of all, they announced that her award would be double. Uh, another um, billionaire named Morris Kahan said, I'll double it. And so she's getting $2 million to give away. And oh. She's going to give it away to uh, to women's causes. So this is, again, some of the uh, behind-the-scenes reporting. This isn't my reporting, but things that I've read said that she uh, showed hesitation as early as December hmm. um, regarding the entire spectacle of the, the prize winner has, in the past has sat with Netanyahu, has received the... Uh, award from Netanyahu and um, you know it just appears to me like she didn't do her homework from the beginning about how closely linked this award was going to be to Netanyahu and in December it seems she started communicating with them that she was not comfortable sitting with him not necessarily comfortable receiving the award from him and it appears that the straw that broke the camel's back may have been uh, a demand from her a request from her that he not attend the ceremony at all um, which they could not say uh, they could not agree to and that's when it seems like things uh, started to totally break down. But Genesis has released some correspondence with Portman that indicates that her initial hesitation was actually about what's been going on on the Gaza border. Well, if you talk about initially, initially was December, which was right, so it must before, have been before any yeah. of this was going on. Okay. Right. Uh, 
So when they were, you know, when they were getting, it seems, into the nitty-gritty of the disagreement of her not wanting any Netanyahu association whatsoever um, in the ceremony, um, behind the scenes, yes, they released uh, they released that uh, that correspondence. There's been other reporting by uh, Jacob Kornblue from Jewish Insider um, said that originally uh, Portman did not, you know, want to be the poster girl for opposition to Netanyahu. She had requested originally that the Genesis Prize announce that she could not attend the ceremony due to rescheduling programs. Um, so it looks like she's sort of an accidental martyr in that uh, the Genesis Prize wasn't going to let her uh, get away uh, so easily with this and therefore, um, uh, you know, release the correspondence and also announce the fact that she wasn't coming on Israeli Independence Day, which was also very, uh, a very bold and, and, and strong move, uh, putting her in the position of looking like she was uh, really insulting uh, Israel. Yeah. And, and one thing that I've noticed is that Everyone has really rushed to define this, right? The the BDS folks are calling it BDS, even though Portman explicitly said that she doesn't support a boycott of Israel. Um, those on the pro-Israel right have tagged Portman as a self-hating Jew. Um, Gilad Erdan, a Likud member of Knesset and a minister in the government, really got in touch with his inner nerd. I don't know if you saw this quote. I, I just want to read it. It's, it's amazing. He said, quote, Anakin Skywalker, a character you know well from Star Wars, went through a similar process. He began to believe that the Jedi Knights were evil and that the forces of the dark side were the defenders of democracy. I call on you to not let the dark side win. <laughs> so our Yeah, op- very clever, right? <laughs> our, our options seem to be that Portman is suffering from a misplaced sense of moral superiority like the BDS crowd, or she's a secret anti-Semite. Or she's just confused, like Anakin Skywalker. So, Allison, which of those three options is it? Well, she's made it pretty clear herself. She issued a release saying, I love being an Israeli. I love Israeli food. I love Israeli culture. I love Israeli dance. Um, she made it very clear that she is not, does not support BDS. Um, but she has a specific problem with the uh, policies of Netanyahu. Now, in her statements, she did not uh, say specifically what they were, but from this correspondence that was released from the Genesis Prize, people we know about the conflict on the Gaza border, and uh, and one suspects, I think, from the wording of her statement, that she's also referring to the uh, intention of the Netanyahu government to uh, to deport thousands of uh, African uh, asylum seekers, that that also makes her uncomfortable in being associated with. In some in some ways, I mean, you know, everyone's identifying with her. She, she's she's become the prototype for the typical um, uh, J Street, New Israel Fund, Americans for Peace Now supporting Jew who highly identifies as Jewish, highly identifies as having a connection to Israel, and yet is strongly uh, critical of, uh, of the Israeli government, the liberal Zionist crowd. So she's kind of a stand-in for that, and therefore she's, uh, she's getting kind of the strong support of people who see themselves in her and she's getting um, very harsh criticism from uh, from those who just don't like that brand of American Jew in general. You know, here at AJC, we're doing a lot of thinking right now, even more than usual, about the relationship between Israeli Jewry and the diaspora. We're gearing up for this historic moment in June for the AJC Global Forum, which is going to be in Israel for the first time, where we'll be bringing more than 1,200 people from all around the world to Jerusalem. Uh, You, Allison, you write about the diaspora. You obviously come from the diaspora. You have subsequently lived in the diaspora. My final question for you is, what does this whole controversy signify about the state of Israel-diaspora relations? 
Um, that we're a really big dysfunctional family at the moment, <laughs> and uh, and it's very uh, it's it, it's always easy to define the people of you know who are loyal at any cost and the family at any cost and Israel right or wrong will stand by it. It's obviously uh, easy to demonize the people who have just said you know Israel has crossed the line for me. I want nothing to do with it. Um, whether that means you know taking Israel out of their lives completely or you know, dedicating themselves to uh, to activism um, and and joining uh, people who uh, who who are taking sort of the strongest measures to change Israeli behavior, including the the boycott, divestment, and sanctions uh, uh, movement, and the ones who are really uh, in in trouble, and the ones who uh, who who have to figure things out. And this is the vast majority, right, of American Jews um, are are people who consider themselves liberal and and consider themselves uh, people who care about the, the state of Israel. And uh, those two identities, I think, are, uh, are right now in a, in a state of crisis. And, uh, and it's something that, uh, that much of American Jewry is, is struggling with right now. Allison, thank you so much for sharing those insights and, and that reporting with us. Uh, thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Harry Potter. Good for the Jews? This one is easy. Yes, unequivocally. I love Harry Potter and I'm sure he loves me back. And any Potter fan deserving of their place in Hogwarts knows that Anthony Goldstein, who was Jewish, was sorted into Ravenclaw House, where the smart wizards go, and proved his mettle by joining the forces of good in their fight against Voldemort in the climactic battle of Hogwarts. But it's actually a different battle I'm interested in today. That's the one J.K. Rowling, creator of Harry and Hogwarts and all that, joined when she took several hours this past week to take on anti-Semitism that she saw scrolling through her Twitter feed. She reassured Jews that they are not alone and calling out those who say that they aren't anti-Semitic, just anti-Israel, she responded by asking, would your response to any other form of racism or bigotry be to squirm, deflect, or justify? Clearly, Harry came by his heroism honestly. If more public figures, especially in the UK and Europe, would stop equivocating and simply condemn anti-Semitism for the racist hatred that it is, that would certainly be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.